Well, good morning, folks. It's lovely to see you again. And thank you again for the privilege of coming to open up God's Word. Uh, That's my delight, just to do that. And uh, I really pray and have been praying that the Lord would encourage you and bless you. I'd like to ask, does anybody remember how many verses there are in the book of James? I did tell you. How many? No, that's the books of the New Testament. <laughs> How many verses in James? 100, 108 verses, yeah, 108 verses. And there are 54 commands. We reminded ourselves of that. Well, we're, this morning we're just going to take time to look at verses 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 1. So I'm going to read them, and then I want to read a couple of verses in Isaiah uh, that remind us of truth that's important to remember. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then in Isaiah chapter 55, just a couple of verses here. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the, high end, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we just remind ourselves that uh, we can't actually work God out. We'd like to, but we can't, and it doesn't always make sense to us. Well, with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll just kick off. Thank you so much, Father for giving us your word as your love letter. And we want to pray that this morning as we come to a verse uh, that introduces us to two other verses, and it's a little bit odd, help us to understand what it means, not only in its context, but what it might mean for us today. Please help us, Father, for we need your help. We pray that your Holy Spirit would just grab hold of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And, and fill us and thrill us with, with your truth, Lord. Help us to understand how it relates to us and impacts our lives. And may we be blessed by it, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure at some stage somebody has said to you, uh, when life throws you a lemon, the best thing to do is to make lemonades. Well, that's okay, uh, as long as you're not juggling with lemons at that particular time. If you are juggling with lemons, because life has thrown you a lemon, then that saying sounds trite, shallow, and becomes a little bit annoying. Well, James says, and it's a really interesting verse, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Well, what does that mean? Because the truth is, most of us don't welcome trials because they make us feel uncomfortable. And when I was a very young Christian, I was a bit naughty. I I used to take out the word trials and put in the names of individuals. You know? (laughs) Consider it joy whenever you meet... (laughs) 
you understand. Well, so what does it mean? And, and why, why is it there? Well, uh, it sounds certainly a little bit odd, but the word consider is a really interesting word. It comes from the realm of finance, and it really means to evaluate. And Paul uses this word in his writings, particularly in Philippians chapter 3. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So Paul is saying, listen, when I became a Christian, I evaluated my life and I set new goals and priorities. And things that had once been really important to him, so important that they became his goal, suddenly no longer seem to be quite so important or significant. In fact, he, he uses, three times he uses the word consider, and then he says, when I, when I think it all, when I evaluate everything in my life, now that I know Jesus, everything in my life before knowing Jesus, well, it's almost like rubbish. It's not worth a whole lot. Because knowing Jesus is worth so much. He uses another little word there that's interesting, the word loss. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And that little word loss appears in Acts 27. You'll remember the, uh, Paul is on his way to uh, Jerusalem in the boat and the big storm, the northeaster comes and whoo, nearly swamps the boat. And uh, everything that was precious, the cargo on the boat, they couldn't chuck it overboard quick enough. They, they considered it lost. Why? Because the cargo was bringing the boat low in the water. And when they got rid of it, the boat was higher in the water. And their whole idea was to keep the sea out of the boat so that the boat didn't sink. You see, it was changed priorities. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. Well, let's back up a little bit and just work our way through these verses. We've already said that James was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and he was a major figure in the early church. Now, look at how he addresses his readers. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers. Fifteen times through this little epistle, he calls the Christians to whom he is writing, brothers. And three times he calls them dear brothers. Isn't that lovely? That tells us a little bit about James, doesn't it? His heart concerned for, for people, many of whom he hadn't met. And yet he calls them his brothers. They were his brothers. Uh, this is surely a relationship we value and work to promote. That's why over many years we've always taught that church is a family. And how wonderful at the start of this service for someone to stand up and say, I'm part of this family. Meeting five folks on the bus from my family. That's really good because that's right from where James is coming. It's great to be part of a family, but life isn't always plain sailing. We need a reality check. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, Whenever you meet or face trials of many kinds. Now, there's a word there that stands out for me, and it's the word whatever. He doesn't say, consider it joy, my brothers, if you meet trials. 
he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials. You see, Christians will always face pressures of one kind or another. We find the word trials here, and it means to try or to prove, to prove. Now, the Bible uses it both in a good sense and a bad sense. The same word is used in verse 12. Um, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So trials are sent by God in order to make a person stand. Temptations are sent by Satan to make a person fall. And in testing us, God is aiming to develop or grow us. In tempting us, Satan is aiming to disgrace us. So God wants to develop us and Satan wants to bring about our disgrace. So God allows trials to come into our lives. And some of these trials come because we're simply human. And those are the trials that are described in the Bible as being common to man. That simply means that everybody experiences them. Everybody at some stage experiences sickness or accidents or disappointments. And there are other trials that come Specifically because we are followers of Jesus. Now look at 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, listen, don't be surprised. Why? Because it's normal. And he doesn't say just try this painful trial. Because sometimes when we're Christians... Uh, people aren't always very nice to us but that's okay if you think of how they dealt with Jesus that's the way folks will be dealing with us and we shouldn't be surprised now it has to be said that life doesn't always make sense to us God is on his throne he rules and he overrules Uh, and sometimes we're tempted to ask why but in truth that's never a very good question to ask because God doesn't give us explanations we don't live by explanations we live by promises that come from God's word many years ago when I was pastoring a church in Suffolk in East Anglia we had a church outing and we went to a carpet factory in East Anglia I, had, I didn't know there was a carpet factory in East Anglia but there, there was I discovered and, and we were taken and shown around this carpet factory and the guide was very interesting we saw these great big machines churning out carpets and uh, as we were looking at them we could see the underside and there were kind of bits of threads hanging down It looked really rather messy. And the pattern on the carpet wasn't very distinct. And the guide spotted us looking at this. And he said, don't judge the quality of the man's work by what you see when you're looking at the underside. You need to judge the quality of his work by looking at the top side. And then he allowed us to have a look at the top. And of course there were no little bits of thread hanging down. And the pattern was really clear and we could see it and really appreciate it. And the same is true. From the perspective we have of kind of looking up, we can't understand God's ways. 
Because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But I'll tell you, when we get to glory, we'll be kind of looking down on it all. And we shall be amazed at what he's done. And I think not only will we be amazed at what he's done, we shall be praising him for his wisdom and his grace and his majesty. Let me digress for a moment by reminding us all that temptation isn't a sin. Temptation isn't a sin. We all face temptation. But we read something rather wonderful about uh, Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. The authorized version is an interesting expression here. It talks about uh, that he was touched by the feelings of our infirmities. Now we have five senses, isn't that right? You've got, you've got taste. If you taste something you don't like, what do you do? You spit it out. We've got hearing. If you hear something you don't like, you block your ears. If you see something you don't like, you close your eyes. If you smell something you don't like, you hold your nose. But you know something? That sensation of touch, you, you can't switch it off. It's, you just can't control it. If somebody touches you, you feel it. And here we have this lovely picture of Jesus who was touched by the feelings of our infirmities. And he was without sin, completely without sin. How wonderful it is that the Lord Jesus understands. Now, speaking of the tests that we face, James says that we face tests of many kinds. But Jesus was tempted in every way. If you like, the, the whole of hell was let loose against Jesus when he lived here on earth. Oh yes, we know that he was tempted in the wilderness, but the end of that passage, it says that the enemy departed until an opportune time. That wasn't, wasn't the only time that Jesus faced temptation. He, he faced temptation morally, socially, physically, materially, mentally and spiritually. He was tempted to display himself to the crowds and to despair when he was alone. He was tempted in the hour of his shining triumph and in the solitary hour of solitary tiredness. He was tempted to be proud, dishonest, selfish, impure, even to distrust his heavenly father and to worship the devil, yet was without sin. And those four words should give the death blow to the devil's attempts to persuade sensitive Christians that temptation is sin. Temptation is not sin. Instead, it is in truth an opportunity to prove the power of God. Temptation, when it comes, is an opportunity for us to prove the power of God. Now there's something else here which is worth noting. James is telling us what we should do when we face temptation. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, it's really interesting. I, I went back to my Greek New Testament and I checked it out. And, and that word, when you face, is a word fall into. Is the word fall or fall into. And it's only used in one other place in the New Testament. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho? Well done. You win a smarty. Well done. On his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what happened? Well, it tells us that he 
fell among thieves, right? Now, I don't imagine, as he walked along, the likelihood is that he saw them from a distance. Oh, they're thieves. Oh, well, maybe I'll be nice to them. No, they jumped on him. They mugged him. They ambushed him. The attack was savage and sudden and without warning. And James uses the same word here. And I think that there is a warning here for us that the reality of the Christian life is that we will be ambushed by tests and temptations. We will be. And I think it's good to expect them because forewarned is forearmed. Isn't that right? Well, okay, what's the result then? What's the, what's the result? Well, there are some things that we need to understand. And it's this. Faith is always tested. Faith is always tested. If you have faith, it will be tested. When God called Abraham to live by faith, he tested him in order to increase his faith. And God always brings or tests us to bring out the best. You remember when Abraham was on top of the mountain and God said, I want you to offer up my son? Do you think that God did that because God wanted to know how Abraham would respond? God is outside of time, isn't he? So, who was to learn the lesson from that? Was it Abraham? Abraham had to learn that when push came to shove, yeah, he would choose to go with God every time. So he learned. And so faith's like a muscle. It needs to be exercised, to be stretched, to develop, and uh, in order to be strengthened. So God tests us to bring out the best, but Satan tempts us to bring out the worst. The testing of our faith proves that we are truly born again. So faith is always tested. The second thing we learn is this, that testing works for us. Testing works for us and not against us. There's a little phrase which is really helpful in 1 Peter 1 and verse 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the Lord Jesus sends tests along in order to prove the genuineness of our faith. Now, many years ago, when I was a young fella, I I used to do a little bit of shooting, and I went to buy a shotgun. And I didn't know an awful lot about guns. I knew one end from the other, all right. But I didn't know a lot about them. But what I learned was very important. That to look for a proof mark on the barrel. That means the gun had been tested and it was safe to use. Sometimes when uh, they're not looked after properly, they can blow up and people can have all sorts of horrible injuries through it. So the proof mark was very important to indicate that it had been tested. Now God's approval of our faith is precious because it assures us that our faith is genuine. These times of testings work for us and not against us. Now that doesn't mean to say they're easy. What does Paul say in Romans 8? Romans 8. 
28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And the thing that puzzles me about that is the expression of all things. Because some of the stuff that happens to us, we are at a loss to understand and know how it possibly could bring glory to God and be helpful to us. But this is where faith comes in. Because this is what God teaches us. That all things work for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So James goes on to tell us why we have these trials and tests and why they are of value to us. He tells us that they develop perseverance. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So that's the purpose of the trials to develop perseverance. Well, what is perseverance? Well, perseverance is staying power. It's heroic endurance. It's fortitude. It's keeping on, keeping on when it doesn't make sense. A man called Josh Billings said, and I really like this, he said, consider the postage stamp. Its usefulness consists in its ability in its ability to stick to one thing until it gets there. Isn't that good? <laughs> yeah, that's perseverance for you. So James is talking about a resilience, a kind of a spiritual toughness that the testing of our faith produces in our lives. Well, how does it work? How does it work? Well, I'm not into boxing, but a boxer trains day after day. He spars in the ring, developing stamina, learning his trade, honing his skills. And in time, he toughens up and develops a staying power so that he won't run after Puff in round two. He trains himself so that he's got the stamina to keep going, to persevere. Until round 12, if there's a 12, 12 rounds in the fight. Now, the truth is that none of us can develop this toughness, this perseverance, without testing. And it's just the same for Christians. I came across an extraordinary example that I want to tell you about. I guess that many of you will have heard of Corrie Ten Boom. Remember Corrie Ten Boom? Yeah, wonderful lady. Well, uh, in 1972, she related a short story, and she entitled it, I'm Still Learning How to Forgive. You may have heard it before. Let me read it to you. She says, I was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. The year was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. That was the title of her message, God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past these men and this man, 
I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at the Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition. That we forgive those who have injured us. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. And his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven. And could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase the slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition. That we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intense as I did then. And Corrie ten Boom died on April the 15th in 1983 in Orange County, California, on her 94th, on her 91st birthday. How extraordinary a story that is. But you know, nature tells us just the same thing. Everybody knows what that is. It's a caterpillar, isn't it? And you know what happens in time? The caterpillar becomes a chrysalis as it's changing into a butterfly. Isn't that right? I don't know if you've ever seen one. But if you ever see one, you may have the temptation to give the butterfly a hand and to very gently cut open the chrysalis to release the butterfly. But you know, if you do that, you'll kill the butterfly. Because the butterfly needs to go through the struggle to develop, to develop the strength to spread its wings, its wings in order to fly. And we need the struggle too. 
if we are to fly for Christ. The truth is that God looks at us today and he loves us too much to want to leave us unchanged. He wants to change us. He wants to make us like his son. And if you look in the mirror, you think, Lord, how on earth are you ever going to make us into the likeness of your son? But that's what he does. And he knows that some of us are spiritual babies and he wants us to grow up in our faith so that we shall be able to exercise a ministry because every Christian has been given a gift. And we've been given a gift not for our benefit, but for the benefit of other people to help others. And that's why our faith is tested in order to develop perseverance so that we might become mature. You see, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And the thought is that if if you're not mature, then you're not quite complete and you are lacking. In other words, you're not able to reach your full potential of all that God might want to do in and through your life. Now, maturity involves reaching our full potential. Somebody has said that maturity is the dynamic state in which a thousand parts of us are honed, shaped, tempered, and brought together, making a dynamic wholeness. Well, that's a bit complicated, isn't it? But maturity is just kind of growing up spiritually, isn't it? Some people think that trials bring maturity. Well, they don't, at least not on their own. It is fortitude and perseverance and trust in times of testings that produce maturity. And sometimes God brings us into a place where it just doesn't make sense to trust him. But real faith is standing in a place where you're going to be in trouble if God doesn't turn up. Can I take a moment to digress? Just tell you a moment. Many years ago in in Finlay, we, we, we were spending a lot of money to refurbish the frontage because we were pretty well kept secret. And we decided we put glass doors in and, and put a cantilever canopy just so that people could see that there was a church there. Folks were walking past saying, hey, is there a church opening up here? No, we've been here for 80 years at that stage or whatever it was. Anyway, just we would we'd just... Um, we were just in the way of doing that. And, and Finley is in this church. There's a three tenements and there's a kind of a shop front and you go through the shop front. And the church is behind the tenements because it's, it's hidden, you see. It doesn't have a spire. It's not visible to the public. And um, the sh- a shop came vacant just beside the, the entrance to the church. And I went to the deacons and I said, guys, we need to get hold of this shop. And they said, look, we've spent all our money on the front. It's costing us a lot of money. And I said, yeah, but, you know, faith is about trusting God when it doesn't make sense. And uh, I, I said, oh, this is, this is, I mean, we, we have to make provision for a bank overdrafts to do this. So I think God wants us to do this. We need this because we're growing and, and we need office space. At one stage, we had 10, 11 folks on staff working in the office. We need office space. And uh, so we made provision for, for an, an overdraft. And the builders moved in and, and, and they started working. And then one day, just before it was finished, we got a phone call. Not me. Somebody in the church got a phone call from the BBC. And the BBC said, hey, we're just moving our premises. Could you use desks and chairs and waste paper baskets and angle poised lamps and filing cabinets 
and an internal telephone system and a computer server. But could you use them by any chance? So I went to the church and I said, what do you think God's saying to us? Don't you think God's saying to us, I really want you to do this. We didn't need to spend any money on office furniture. And it was all matching. Very nice. Paid for by the license (laughs) payers. So there you go. How amazing God is. I don't know what God might be bringing to your life in terms of testing you. I don't know how he has tested you in the past. Maybe you're still in the hurting stage. Or maybe you've gone through it and you've said, Lord, don't understand it. But I'm going to trust you anyway. And I'm going to be like that stamp. I'm going to stick to you, Lord. Because you're worth it. We need to practice spiritual toughness as we go through trials of many kinds. Um, Economic stress. Disappointments. Criticism. (laughs) Tell you about that. Health issues. Relationship struggles. To name but a few. But you know God works through all of these things. Life on earth would be much. uh, Not worth much if every source of irritation were removed. When I was on honeymoon. I took my wife to an oyster farm. And uh, I bought her an oyster. Because there might have been a pearl in it. And there wasn't. I was really disappointed. So I had to buy her another oyster. (laughs) And there was a pearl in it. But do you know how the pearl is formed? The oyster is there. And it's, uh, it kind of opens and closes a little bit. And sometimes little grains of sand get in. And they irritate. And, and the irritation is such that the oyster secretes a little substance that, that covers the source of the irritation. And it keeps on doing that. And finally a pearl is formed. And a pearl is valuable. But the pearl is the result of an irritation. And sometimes God brings stuff into our lives that make us feel uncomfortable. But if we bring them to God, God in his mercy and grace can work in us to do unusual things that bring glory and honor to his name. And you sit there and you think, well, God, how can you do anything unusual through me? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God has chosen the weak to overcome, the strong and the foolish to overcome the wise. So if you feel weak and foolish, the good news is that you qualify as someone whom God can use. Now, get this, 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's, that's a given. We, we know that. We don't face much in this country, though I think it's coming. Myself, I think it's coming. Life will always be full of testing. Trials are not a sign of God's displeasure, but an opportunity to develop perseverance and maturity. And that's why James says to us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because it means that God is at work in our hearts and lives. God can't build our characters without our cooperation. And that means that every day, 
we make the choice to go God's way. Every day. Lord, I don't understand what's going on. But I know enough about your character to say that I can trust you. I never cease to be amazed that God would actually organize stuff to touch my life so that I might grow. And he does it for you too. I want to finish with a little poem that expresses the, I guess, the pain in the heart of a man in whom God is working. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out God knows what he's about let's pray thank you so much Lord for all the wonderful stuff you teach us in your word and for all that James is writing in these verses and we thank you that And we read them and look at them and begin to unpack them. How our hearts are blessed and encouraged. And we want to pray for each other just now. We want to pray most especially, Father, for any who are going through a time of painful testing. Perhaps the testing has been a little while ago. And and the pain lingers. Perhaps the pain is fresh. Perhaps the pain is going to come next week, Lord. God, we want to pray for each other because we just need you. We can't really do this on our own. But we thank you that you've sent your Holy Spirit to help us. And we pray, O Lord, that in helping us, that we might be all that you desire us to be, that honour and glory might be brought to your own great name. We ask these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.